We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 141 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 5th of April, 2018. With me once again, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, g'day, g'day. How's everyone? Um, let's get secular. Good on you, Scott. And also, Paul the Twelfth Man. Hello. I accept whatever punishment uh, the cricket board deems appropriate or whatever punishment you two guys do, uh, meet out to me during the podcast. Um, have, you, have you been doing some ball tampering? Is ball that tampering. You, is that what you want to confess to now? No ball tampering as such, no. Right. Um, Haven't been rubbing any balls with sandpaper maybe? or anything like that? No? no right, no. okay. Never touched the balls. Well, you've got to make the team and then you've got to commit an offence and then you plead guilty. Oh, okay. So until so then, you're with us, uh, 12th man. So, um, right. Lots of issues again. Um, you know, last week was a bumper episode, nearly two hours. Was it? Yes. And I sort of thought to myself afterwards, I should have just chopped that into two one-hour segments and had a week off. But I didn't. So, dear listener, <laughs> you're lucky we're just back again. I tell you what, if this one goes for two hours, I'm chopping it up and we're going to play the second half next week. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. In recent times, we've referred to hell. So my chat with uh, Chris Lamb of the New Creation Church, uh, he reluctantly admitted I was going to hell. And um, good news, everyone. I'm off the hook because we've got an article here where there was a, uh, an atheist journalist had an, a meeting with the Pope and uh, he, the Pope, denied the existence of hell. Um, during the meeting, Scalfari asked the Pope where bad souls go, to which he was quoted as responding, this is the Pope, they are not punished. Those who repent obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. A hell doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists. Oh, that's pretty easy. He says, those who repent obtain God's forgiveness. Oh, well, if, if I'm wrong and I'm facing God, I'll, I'll be quickly repenting. Yeah, I don't know. What about you? Well, you, you've got to, my understanding is you've got to repent before you actually die. You've got to have a deathbed repentance and that sort of stuff and acceptance and whatnot on your deathbed. Uh-huh. Um, that's my understanding of it all. I don't know. Now, the Pope's saying that he's, what did he say? He said the... Uh, uh, but for those who do not repent, cannot be forgiven, disappear. So what he's saying there is that hell doesn't exist. So actually what happens to those of us that are all woeful sinners, we just disappear. Right. So we get the end that Stephen Hawking was talking about where, you know, what he said, he said there was no afterlife for dead computers or anything like that. They just cease to exist. Mm. Right. It's, so that's what's going to happen to okay. the likes of us. Because he yeah. talks about bad souls and where they go to, which made me think that the soul had the chance to repent. So uh, that's I what, think the soul is... The right. I, I, my reading of it was the soul was already determined by the time you, you actually die. 
It's yeah. pretty hard, isn't it, yeah. to interpret these words? And the Vatican said that the literal words pronounced by the Pope are not quoted. And they're saying, pay no attention to that article. And they say that... Um, so this is the official line from the Vatican in response. The Catholic Church's teachings affirm the existence of hell and its eternity. And they say, quote, the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God. Do you get the feeling that this Pope is sort of like the Donald Trump of, <laughs> of the Christian theology? He's just uh, shooting from the hip. You know? Yeah, kind of like White House officials yeah. worrying about Trump's next to, tweet. They have to keep sort of trying to cover for him. Yeah. And now the Vatican officials are having to cover for the Pope's loose, loose talk. I think that could be right, actually. He's a bit of his own man that way and just have to say things. So. Do, you think he, do you ever suspect he's a secret atheist and that he's just trying to gradually you know, work his way through to just telling everybody... Um, no. It's, it's all rubbish, isn't it? No, because on the other hand, this Pope has a fixation with the devil. Oh. He's mm. convinced the devil exists. And we've got another article here where the Vatican is holding exorcist training courses after uh, an exponential rise in demonic possessions. Believe it or not, I mean, this is from the 31st of March 2018. Um, the Vatican is to hold a training course for priests in exorcism next month amid claims that demands for deliverance from demonic possession have greatly increased. Blah, blah, blah. According to a priest from Sicily, the number of people in Italy claiming to be possessed has tripled to 500,000 a year. And an Irish priest has said demand for exorcisms has risen exponentially. 500,000 a year? Mm. That's a hell of a lot, isn't it? I've got an explanation. So have I. Yeah, go Yours on. first. Okay. Well, according to the Pope, there's no hell. So we're at these demons. If you're not in, if they're not in hell, they must be in our world. So, and but Satan aren't they must be. to disappear. Well, normally they would scurry back to hell, but if there's no hell, they have to hang around and mm. possess people. So mm. that's what's going on there. What's your theory? Well, you've heard about this um, this cabal in the Liberal Party who are trying to uh, who are fermenting rebellion against our good Prime Minister, um, and they've recently suggested building a coal-fired power station at taxpayers' expense. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of it's a it's a kind of rebellious clique, you know, within the, the Liberal Party. I think the guys who are running this this seminar for exorcists. They're like the, the same group within the Vatican uh, hierarchy. Right. They're just a rat bag. Um, a bunch of rat bags who are trying to stir things up. Outliers. Yeah, not, so. not real Catholic yeah. Vatican officials that's, there. That's my theory. Could be. Could be. So, uh, it's a possibility. Mm. So we've just had uh, Easter. Scott, I reckon this next article is one that really would have um, got your goat. So... Dear listener, in parliaments around the world, there's a tradition of pairing. So if somebody in parliament has an engagement which means they can't be on the floor and vote, and it's a legitimate engagement, for example, they need to go to a funeral or they need to attend something of some significance that it's understandable that they need to be excused. And... What that would mean then is that their team loses a vote on the floor of Parliament. So 
they reach out to one of the um, members on the opposite side and say, I have to be away and can't vote. Do you agree uh, to pair with me so that you will be absent from the chamber and not vote as well, and therefore my non-voting is is offset by your non-voting? And it's called a pair, and it's been done for generations, probably. It's a, it's a well... It's been around since the... Parliamentary records were, were first tabled, yeah. yeah. It is it's, something that has been around yeah, for a long time. It's yeah. completely common and it makes sense and it's there. And, I mean, it's up to the other side to say, no, I don't think that's legitimate just because you're going to a football match. Um, I'm not giving you a pair. You should be in Parliament. So they need to come up with a good excuse. So, anyway, in the State Parliament of Victoria, Bernie Finn and Craig Ondarchi both told Parliament that they did not want to go to work on Good Friday along with Easter Sunday and they were granted pairs. So two Labor MPs stayed away. But when the Upper House vote was taken on a controversial fire services bill, lo and behold, Finn and Ondachi turned up and voted. And the absence of the two Labor MPs meant that the Liberals won by a single vote. Scott, I reckon you're aghast at this. Well, it was pretty uh, poor behaviour on behalf of Finn and uh, Undachi. It was, um, yeah, it was appalling behaviour what they did. I mean, I'm aghast that... uh, Well, I'm I'm surprised that the... um, Liberals were sitting, the Parliament was sitting on Good Friday anyway, because I thought that was a public holiday for everyone, including parliamentarians. Yeah. But even if even if they weren't, even if it was sitting, it was suggested, these two bastards approached the opposition, approached the Labor government and said, well, can you grant us a pair because we can't be there because of our Christian faith? Mm. And that, I think, is absolutely disgusting that they've done that. Anyway... They've now got a situation that the Labor Party would be quite within their rights to not grant any pairs now because they've been misusing. They have misused that, and uh, that would be the end of it as far as I was concerned. You know, it, it could well be the end of the whole pairing system, you know, mm. which should, which is a hell of a – it's a hell of a pity, but it is, um, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. And if they're, going, if they're going to behave like this, as they have done, they can, uh, they've only got themselves to blame. Anyway, the, the, I've no doubt that the Labor Party can reintroduce the legislation and get it, and they'll be able to beat the gov- the opposition next time. But uh, I'm sure it was very poor form. But yeah. you know, it was the, extremely the, poor. The, the form. key part of this is their reasons for not attending or wanting a pair were religious, because they said exactly Good Friday, uh, extremely religious time for them. Um, Finn told Parliament he does not even celebrate his birthday when it falls on Good Friday. And Ondachi said, this is the day that my Lord was crucified. I do not want to be here. So the reasons were religious. And what had happened was the leader of the party told them, I want you there and I want you voting and I don't care that you've got pairs. I want you there. Mm. And they, with no moral character to them, just agreed and said, okay, how gutless. So in this particular article... It, the, was, ext- it was extremely gutless, yeah. Yeah, the writer makes the point they should simply have refused. By acceding, they misled Parliament. Perhaps they did not read what Apostle Peter told the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. 
who ordered him to stop teaching about Jesus. He said, we must obey God rather than men. And how much more honourable it would have been for Finn and Ondachi to say, we gave our word to Parliament and we must fulfil it. Exactly. So, yeah. Terrible performance. Not only that, but the opposition leader, Matthew Guy, claims to be a devout Christian. <laughs> His claim's looking a bit thin now, isn't it? Not very Christ-like, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've always, I've never understood how the hell you can have this, because um, we've now got the Gregorian calendar, which means that the same thing happens year in, year out. Why is it that Easter moves and that sort of stuff? I know it's based around the lunar calendar and that sort of thing, which makes absolutely no sense. Anyway, yeah. I've never tried to understand. Yeah. Have you? Uh, no, well, I've never tried to nut it out. I just... It's just one of those things. Mm. Yeah. Last week I mentioned about the text messages from the Bible Society. Yeah, <laughs> I did listen to the... And did you have a good the, weekend um, waiting for your text messages to bu- come in? I got a bunch of them over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been exciting for you. Well, they were really cheesy. Oh, they were yeah. like, oh, my goodness, they've been to the tomb and there's yeah. nobody there. Where's Very he gone? Or, and they were, you know, quick, run, hide, they're after us. Oh, you know, where will we go? And Peter saying, oh, I've denied him three times and blah, blah, blah. So... Look, it was cheesy, but full marks of the Bible Society. It was a clever little marketing ploy, I thought. So the people in the game, well, they would have enjoyed it. They've won someone. They've won one fan, one new fan. Who's that? You. Well, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan of their initiative. Oh, okay. And, you know, I did, you know, you never see secularists providing that sort of... That's true. Maybe voicemail service, you, you, do you? You think we should write a, a cheesy little play about I'm just becoming, saying, a, becoming a secularist or something? They get out there and do things, don't they? So um, That they do. They do. I've got a link here to an article by Michael Jensen about the Book of Mormon. And um, Michael Jensen I've heard on different things. He's full on. Well, actually, what's he is the... Um, He's the rector of St. Mark's, Darling Point, and author of My God, My God, Is It Possible to Believe Anymore? And he's on a lot of radio programs, and he gets a Guernsey on a few different shows, and he's quite full on. I call him Mr. Harborside Cathedral. Right, do you? <laughs> From now on. Anyway, he went to see the Book of Mormon, and he said um, he was a bit worried about going to see it. Um, He says, if you're nice and a decent person, does it matter what you believe? And some of the nicest people he's ever met are Mormons. He says, they believe in some of the strangest things of any religion I've come across, including that ancient Israelite tribes built boats and sailed to America, and that there's a planet or a star called Kolob next to the throne of God, and that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from a language called Reformed Egyptian, inscribed on golden plates, that he discovered near his home in New York State. So Michael Jensen says, that's really strange belief. I'm with Michael on that. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, despite the profanity and the satire, the show was surprisingly pro-religious faith as a transformative power to bring hope to the world. He must have watched a different show to the one I watched. I was going to ask you that because you didn't have that same conclusion, did you? (laughs) No, it did not. And it was... The whole premise of the show is that the Mormons, when uh, 
they arrive completely out of their depth and when they try to put forward their normal doctrines, the, the Africans completely ignore them and tell them to go away. And it's only when they start spinning complete lies about stuff that they have any success in converting people and then the lies are eventually exposed. So it did not have a trans didn't show religious faith as having a transformative power at all. It showed it as being quite deceptive and counterproductive. But you know, yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, uh, so how does Michael Jensen arrive at those conclusions? Uh, looking at the world through rose-coloured theological glasses. Yeah, reading things into it that aren't there, and uh, he says one of the messages from it is that it doesn't matter what you believe; it's belief that matters. Any belief, oh and, and that is one of the songs in there where Elder Price says, "A Mormon just believes," and. Michael Jensen saying, well, that was a message. Just believe, any belief, and it'll be good enough. Um, but he asks, is that enough? Is a flaky idea uh, going to make us nicer people? Is that okay? No. He declares, I'm with the atheists, like the late Stephen Hawking here, in saying, no, it isn't. To happily believe an illusion is simply tragic, like imagining you are happily married while your spouse has multiple affairs unbeknown to you. It's an interesting analogy he raises, isn't it? Yes. I wonder what's going through his mind. Well, he says, so, so far, dear listener, we've got him saying that the Mormons have lots of flaky ideas, which they obviously have faith Mm -hmm. in, and it makes them nicer people. But is that okay? Is that enough to have a, a faith in a flaky idea? And he says, incredibly that faith isn't the opposite of reason, it is a necessary complement to reason. Oh, for God's sake. That's really weak, twisted semantics. And he basically says (sighs) his Christian faith is based and complemented by reason and that the Mormons are just wrong and they're believing in the wrong thing on just faith, so they're wasting their time. Believe in a lie and you'll be taken for a fool, he says. Yeah, he is. He does. He also says the Apostle Paul even admitted this, arguing that if the resurrection of Christ was a hoax, then the Christian faith is a pathetic joke. Michael's getting closer and closer (laughs) to the truth. (laughs) Keep going, Michael. Uh, You're nearly there. He says here, Easter can't just be a myth about rebirth or a vague story about hope. It's either based on events that actually occurred in time and space or it is nothing at all. Might be the latter. Well, I think it's nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. He says here, that's where I'm putting my faith on the line. I believe some strange things too. A guy rose from the dead, for starters. Pretty strange. But I'm not going to hide behind the take-it-on-faith mantra. Christian faith offers itself up for scrutiny. Either it's convincing or it isn't. So he's... He's basically saying, yes, they are two quite fanciful stories and I've got the right story. But he says Christian faith offers itself up to scrutiny. Mm. Now, I don't know what books Michael Jensen has been reading, but I've read several books that scrutinised some of the historical claims and, you know, claims of fact that the Christian religion bases itself on or claims to be true. Mm -hmm. 
And they've been found uh, wanting, I'm afraid. And so, so well, well, for a start, exodus and the Jews and... Oh, complete, and oh, complete fabrication. I yes. mean, they were out on the building of the pyramids by about 500 years. Yeah. So there's plenty of evidence. I but thought that, that they... I thought they'd found that there was absolutely no evidence of Jews living in e- Egypt. That's true. Yeah. They found yeah. none. Yes. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. In circumstances where they'd have to find some sort of DNA evidence yeah. and archaeological evidence, yeah. I mean, anyone is prepared to write this, these two sentences. Faith isn't the opposite of reason. Faith is a necessary complement to reason. Well, you, you just That's can't go anywhere. Yeah, I know. You just can't go anywhere with that, can you? You really... No, you can't. It's a load of nonsense, isn't it? Um, oh, I have a confession to make. Mm. I got into a Facebook You know battle. I'm not a priest, and yeah. so I'm not really authorised to accept the confession. You're the best I've got at okay. this stage, you and Scott. Yeah, okay. but it's been a while since I got into a Facebook feud, and I got into one on Hugh Harris's damn Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were only three or four comments into it, and I messaged um, Hugh separately to say, damn you, Hugh Harris, and your Facebook page that's drawing me into a black hole of just nonsense. And sure enough, it, 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 it drew me down and swallowed me up for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> it all started with a guy claiming that, you know, we spoke about the challenge to the chaplaincy program on the basis of yeah. it being against our anti-discrimination laws. Yeah. And a guy on his page responded to an article about that, saying it would be a slam dunk um, if the humanists in their case did two things. One was um, claim that they, as, as humanists, were a religion. And um, uh, actually, that was the main part of the claim. And, and I said... Well, they can't because they don't have a supernatural belief and that's what you need because of the Scientology case. And then we just got into this huge argument over the Scientology case and it went on and on and on and ended up in some dark places and quite abusive and another character got involved as well and, um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't my... I start off by saying to Hugh, Hugh, do you really want people to deface your Facebook page? Like, you know, shouldn't you curate this a little bit? And probably by the end I was as guilty as anybody of defacing his Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies, Hugh. I went, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be anywhere near a Facebook. It was so time-consuming. You so what are you confessing, Trevor? I did poor behaviour, really. Oh, okay. I went too far. Did yeah. You? yeah, I did. Oh. So... Um, but it is got, easy to do, though, isn't it? It is. It, this is, it the is thing. very easy yeah. to get pulled into an arguments and that mm. sort of stuff. And mm. I've got to admit, I just bite my tongue when I see garbage being written on it now because I just think to myself, I'm not going to engage because I know I'm going to get dragged into it and I'll be stuck there for hours. Yeah. You have to pick your fights and you have to know clear in your head how far you're willing to go and, you know, at what stage you're just going to say, that's enough, I'm out. There's a couple of ideas here because it's kind of the people were obviously, I think, not religious and are sort of pro-secular in arguing what would make a slam dunk for a secular victory. Mm. 
you know, I could have an hour-long discussion with Chris Lambie and, and disagree with everything he says, but not get worked up because I had no expectations. Like, mm. it just that's fine. Whatever you think. Like, I really... Mm. But when it comes to atheists arguing with atheists or secularists and secularists, some of the most bitter fights are between people within the same group. Do you know, like, Labor people will fight more bitterly with Labor people than they will with... Or Liberals with other Liberals. Yes. Infighting can be some of the worst. It's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. Um, the other thing was that um, despite all of the faults of the, of the process, um, it is good to get out of an echo chamber of agreement and... Being forced to actually check on things and read more carefully and um, look things up, my knowledge of the Scientology case has improved enormously as a result. (laughs) So there is a side benefit and we need to explore more the contrary views. Completely agree, yeah. And there is the danger in some of these, not closed groups, but I mean, obviously, uh, I don't think Hugh Harris runs a a closed uh, group, but... There is the danger when you know most of the people that participate are going to be more or less, you know, on the same page as you. There is the danger of the, as you said, an echo chamber. And, and I also agree with you. I think it's healthy to have a, a divergence of views. Can you believe Scott's disappeared again? No, I that. Dear listener, Scott dropped out on us again. So we're now just recovering a conversation that we were having where we were just... Mm. saying um, getting out of the echo chamber is worthwhile. It's healthy. It is. But there's one thing, though. Trolls on Facebook pages who are there to cause mischief and who aren't really promoting genuinely an idea, when do you draw the line and say, this person is clearly not engaging on the issues and is just causing mischief, at what point... Is there any point where a curator of a Facebook page or group needs to say, you know what, you've been asked to clarify things, you've been asked to prove things and you've, you've dodged and weaved and haven't addressed them and you've basically said... Black is white, and the and the ignore sun them. is going to rise in the west and set in the east. And I would just ignore them and wait mm. for them to 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 mm. get tired of somebody responding to mm. them and just. Yeah, there we go. Okay, there you go. It's a uh, it's a tricky one, but anyway, that was um, that kept me busy for a few days. And uh, anyway, my knowledge of the Scientology case has improved enormously. But um, dear listener, for your benefit. Two judges said there must be a belief in a in a supernatural being or principle, and uh, two other judges said, "Well, there's five criteria that you would want to have lots of in order to qualify." And the first three of those all had a supernatural element. The fourth was that you are a group, and the fifth one was that you think you're a religion. And that came about because there was a case in America where this group fulfilled all the requirements of being a religion and said, but we're not a religion because they didn't want to breach the establishment cause. So 
it's possible to be a religion even if you don't want to be a religion, if you fulfil all of the other elements and are simply saying you're not a religion because you're trying to get around some laws. So, uh, so anyway, that, just I'll digress one moment, is the problem for any Satanist groups out there considering conducting activities in Australia similar to the Satanic Temple in America. So the Satanic Temple, the way they work is they say, okay, Christian groups, as a religion, you are enjoying these special privileges, a Ten Commandments monument or prayer invocations at council meetings or things like that. We as Satanists are a religion and we demand the same rights. In America, their definition of a religion is much wider than ours. So anyone hoping to run the same argument here as a Satanist group has really got to say we're a religion and in order to do that, they've got to have some supernatural element, which makes it tough if they are a ostensibly atheist secular group who are using Satanism as a, as a rebellious sort of political front. As a front, yes. Yeah, so that's the trick. Mm. Potential Satanists out there, if you're looking to become active in Australia and doing the same sorts of things that the Satanic Temple does. Moving away from religion for a moment, we've got an article here about Ben Quilty, the artist. So, Scott, have you ever heard of Ben Quilty? I'd only heard of him once you read that, uh, once you sent through that Arts Hub thing that I read. So I'd never heard of him before that, but people shouldn't pay that any attention. I don't know artists, so yeah. I think he does those um, quite messy portraits, and I think, um, you know, there was the guys in Bali who were on death row, and one of them became quite an accomplished artist, and I think he'd taken lessons from Ben Quilty. Anyway, he's got a good style oh, about okay. him. okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I think that's him. Anyway, he gave a talk at an event which was uh, there were 500 delegates from the arts, screen and culture industries for the Arts 2025 Summit hosted by Create New South Wales. And he was sort of a keynote speaker and he said, he called for a change in the taxation system. He reminded those gathered, in France there's no tax on art materials, which means artists are attracted to go and live in France. In Ireland, income under 250000 is absolutely tax-free if you work in the arts. And that everyone in the arts, from literature to painting and filmmaking. So he's suggesting something similar would be good in Australia. That's very surprising, isn't it? Particularly the Irish case. Scott? It's absolutely criminal that this guy is saying that we should have something like that here. You know, income is income is income. It doesn't matter how you earn it, whether it's prostitution, photography or artwork. You know, it really should be just based on the income that you earn during the year. Now, artists also, if they still do... um, when I was studying tax, which is a little while ago now, mm. artists can have a averaging of their income over five years. Yep. So that was the whole idea of that was to smooth out the bumps that they make in their income, that they can have very large incomes in some years and then bugger all for a couple of years after that. So they average it out over five years to reduce the amount of income tax that you have to pay on the big bumper years. Yep. Um, 
I'm pretty sure that's still the case now. I could be wrong, though. And that is a bloody big concession already. I didn't. I personally think that concession should be done away with and that you really? just should pay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I just think you should pay tax on your income in the year. Oh, I think. Know? And that should. Re- really? You've got a problem with an averaging revision, Absolutely, Scott. I do, yes. Yeah, I businesses do. get um, those sorts of tax breaks, don't they? Um, no, they don't. They, they don't. I mean, yeah. look, you know... Yes, they you do. Can, the big can, businesses like Qantas, oh, yeah, they but, get you know, some got, sort of concession you, you, about averaging their... Isn't there no, capital expenditure? No, they just, no, they they just, they they just they, do they, things accounting-wise to average things out. So, yeah, if, What actually happened with hmm. Qantas, for example, which was, which was a year or two ago that they were saying that Qantas paid no income tax in this year despite having sales of X billion dollars. That was true, but the reason why they didn't pay any income tax in that year is because they wrote off their A380s. The A380s, they wrote them down to zero. Well, they crashed them. That's what, no, they didn't the, crash the them. They value. just wrote them off. Right. They just wrote them off and that sort of stuff to, to reduce the value on the books. Mm. And they took that loss in one year and then Alan Joyce turned around the next year and said, look, see, we've gone from a loss last year to a profit this year. Aren't I the best thing since sliced bread? And just um, remind me again how much my bonus is and how it's calculated. Exactly, yeah. yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So that's why he's, that's why I was able to give a million bucks to the yes case. But anyway, that's uh, I get off my, I get off my high horse now. Um, but Scott, you know, individuals yeah. who have, you know, uneven income and have a bumpy year, you know, an artist sells a cracker of a painting for a few hundred thousand but only earns 20 or 30 in the other year, surely that's fair to... And he loses, what, 49% of his bumper year income. Yeah, surely that's fair. Absolutely he does, but I think that's quite reasonable to expect that you've got to pay your tax that year. Mm. I, I don't think that we should average the income out. You're tough. Would you the, like the, to velvet glove, the, the velvet glove is becoming the iron fist, and the iron fist is becoming yeah. the velvet glove. This is a parallel universe that, here. Yes, yeah. Very hard hit. No, this is into income tax matters. I am very much black and white. You see, I think yeah. that we should do away with all the income tax deductions for business and that sort of stuff when you have business tax levied on the gross income. So you then reduce the rate right down to 2 or 3%, and it's just levied on the sales. Mm. And then you have the same you have the same income tax rate paid by every business regardless of what they do. And then what that means is because you because you're ignoring the income tax deductions that they would manufacture to offshore their income to Singapore, yep. they're just going to pay the income tax on their gross income. Good thinking. Scott Absolutely. In, the, in the Iron Fist Velvet Glove government, when you're treasurer, <laughs> put that right at the top of the agenda. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, then you could you could you could have you could then have income tax paid in the same way by companies, trusts, partnerships, the whole lot. You just, know, just, you would then just eliminate the nonsense that has been going on for years. Yeah, and just the bit about slugging artists, you know, who have a bumpy year. We'll put that down <laughs> the bottom of the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's your accounting background has has um, affected you in that regard. I don't think you'd think that way. Except for your mm. your professional has sent you in that direction of thinking. It's, it's made him into it a very has. hard person, I think. Yeah. It has made me a very hard person, but I honestly <laughs> think that we should actually – I honestly think the way we should deal with the whole corporate tax avoidance is to sit their bastards down and tell them 
that they've got two years to get their house in order mm. and they've got to start paying tax in Australia or this is what's coming. The, the, and then well, the beauty of that is then when Apple, with I don't know how many stores in Australia, you know, sells something, they'll pay tax. That's the beauty exactly. of the system. Mm. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Right, back to religion for a moment. We had our uh, Ruddock uh, panel is busy examining all of the submissions and it is possible to start looking at the submissions that have come through. So if any submission was put through prior to the 31st of January, they're all up on their website and you can flick through and find them and read what people have to say. Uh, Mine's not there, 12th man, because I did mine quite late in the day right towards the end of the process, so they've only got the early ones up there. But what they've done is they've actually batched them. They've said that there are so many submissions that are so similar to each other in their wording, etc., They've grouped them into batches, and I think we'll find that they're uh, pro-religious ones organised by religious groups. And um, so, yeah, as of January, they had uh, six categories which they claimed were substantially similar submissions, and they've just grouped them all together. So, uh, so that's interesting. So. Anyway. Submission Group 1, I'm just reading it now. The recent changes to the Marriage Act moved directly against the Christian view of marriage, which is expressly between a man and a woman, mm. to the exclusion of all others. Mm. So so that's Submission Group 1. We go into Submission Group 2, which is freedom of religion is more than freedom to worship. It is freedom to live out one's faith in public. Oh, dear God in heaven. <laughs> well, <laughs> And, Dear God in heaven isn't going to help you on this well, one. Well, I was just going to say Scott is living his, his faith on the podcast. Yeah. Well, I was just... No, uh, it's, it's honestly going to be a load of nonsense, isn't it? Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. You, you okay. can, so, dear listener, you know, you can go and on the website they've got them listed for the ones submitted prior to the 31st of January. They've got 28 pages with about 20 submissions per page. I went right to the end, on page 28. The third last one is from Father Augustinos Tusicaralis. And um, I'll just quickly open his up and see what he had to say. This was his submission. There is one aspect in life that was always most cherished but also respected, that no amount of wealth can replace it, whether rich or poor. Our freedom to express our belief, sorry, our opinion, our freedom to worship. This is the freedom which is rapidly being stripped from man, that not even God would intervene, although given by him. The freedom to worship how one desires without jeopardising another's free will, where such law the Australian Constitution was based on, that things were running just fine until some people tried to perfect the wheel. History is our greatest teacher. I, started, I think he started drinking halfway through this. <laughs> I think he was drunk before he started writing it. How was it then and how things are now? If this is totally stripped from us, then the rest is meaningless, hopeless and chaos. I agree with the chaos part. There you go. That's some of the calibre of the submissions that the panel, is, um, the, the, the panel is having to deal with. So Look, I, I think he's a, he looks like a Greek... Um, to be charitable, I don't think English is his first language. No, I don't think so. I don't think logic was his first preference. <laughs> you don't think <laughs> rationality was his first form of logic? No, no. So, um, 
We haven't mentioned a Kenan Malik article in a while, and he is one of your favourites. He is. And he's, uh, I've got a link here to an article from him saying, we've lost our faith in God, but we've lost our faith in reason too. And he is saying that, look, in summary, that um, Western civilization has largely moved away from being religious and initially, with the Enlightenment, people were excited to turn to reason and rationality, but that that excitement and satisfaction is waning as people are becoming less... They felt that reason would lead the way to some new form of meaning of life, and that that hasn't happened. So that... People have left religion, they've turned to reason, but they're not happy with that either. And I don't people, think they have, though, do you, on the well, whole? That people have left religion? No, that they've turned to reason. Uh, well, they've uh, turned to something else, but I'm not yeah. sure it's reason. Well, They've turned to, you know, short-term gratification of desires. Well, the, th- the issue, though, is that reason hasn't really provided a, a, a meaning of life um, plan or um, outline that religion provided. Mm. People don't have the comfort of saying, I know what to do mm. and, well, also I've got to try the people with me all in the same boat. It's, mm. you know, essentially, yeah, and if you're interested in that sort of thinking, then that's what the article says. Yeah, his, his articles are always... Thought-provoking, yeah. I find. Did you like it? I, I mean, I for me, it wasn't one of his best pieces of work, but it was, you know, interesting. Mm. Um, well, he does say that religion is not simply a set of beliefs. It's a means of creating a sense of community, identity and meaning. One reason for the growth of fundamentalism is that all of those things are in short supply today. Yes. And fundamentalism provides that. That remains absolutely true, I think. Yes. And, you know, I mean, you, and, and, if you read the sociology of fundamentalist religion, that's exactly why it is so appealing to so many people, is it provides that sense of community and belonging and acceptance and, frankly, makes them feel uh, as if their lives have some significance. Yes. And... Uh, the other alternative, if you're looking for community, is identity. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons for identity politics is, mm-hmm. well, here's a tribe that I can work with and promote Indeed. and be part of. So and that's why it's appealing, the whole identity politics, yeah, as a replacement for religion. Keying into that same slot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that same need. Which we may never have said before, but perhaps thought. There we go. Ken and Malik. Um, There's a link on there. Scott, um, we've got a message from Landon Hardbottom, um, which... Landon Hardbottom is one of my favourites, actually. Yeah, he's good. He is good, yeah. So anyway... um, He's a devoted fan of the podcast too, isn't he? He he is. Now, he heard our call for feedback on my interview with Chris Lamb, and uh, so he's provided some feed bottom. Hardbottom. Hard Bottom has provided some feedback, so I'll just play that now. Fist, glove, Hard Bottom here. I've just been listening to your Chris Lambie and the New Creation Church podcast. 
Oh. <laughs> oh, I did ask for feedback. Is that it? You did ask for feedback, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Look, he's tough. It was succinct. He was. You know, he's, he's, he's mentioned before when he's not happy with us that we're in trouble. I'll just remind you what, what he th- threatened us with once before. Fist, glove, you two have not experienced horror until you have experienced the full weight of a hard bottom crushing you. Yeah, we're on the, we've gone on the wrong side of land and hard bottom. <laughs> oh, dear. What can you do to remedy that? It's a worry, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a worry. It is a worry, yes. Yeah. Landon, what I, I'll just mention this as well. I have everything uh, lined up on a, uh, on a Chrome browser with all the different tabs, and we just sort of move from right to left on the tabs for each topic. And just to remind me of what we're talking about, if there's not actually uh, an internet link, is I'll just do a little Google search on the topic so that I know, okay, I have to talk about that. So on this one, I actually did a little Google search, Landon Hardbottom, just to remind me that I had to play that clip. And Landon, if you're listening, well, of course you're listening, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just at some stage in your leisure... Um, do a Google search on land and hard bottom, <laughs> and, and what you'll find is that the the first three um, entries on Google are all Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcasts, and and then the rest are all porn sites of one type or another. Because <laughs> they yes, and uh, yeah, land and land and hard bottom is is. Well, I think there was a porn star called Landon, and then the hard bottom bit certainly works in that sphere. So, yeah, it's you'll, you'll come up with some interesting search results if you type Landon like hard bottom in. Quite appealing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, thank you, Landon, for your contribution. We will try to do better next time. Um, thank you very much, Landon. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of feedback, one of our patrons, Tony. He gave us some feedback. He said, greetings again, gents. Always enjoy the show. Always get a thrill to see a new episode pop up in my podcast app. He said, you wanted feedback, and he said, I'll sort of summarise it, honey, but basically found it valuable up to a point, and it was a glimpse into the workings of the apologist mind. But he agrees with the 12th man that Chris was not intellectually robust enough to really offer much. And no value in having him again, but I do see value in having similar episodes with perhaps some more intellectual types. It would be a summary. So there you go. Thanks, Tony. I don't know what you're going to get if you if you look for an intellectual Christian, though. I mean, you're just going to end up with someone arguing the same stuff, aren't you? Well, I've got a surprise for you there. Let me just go through oh, okay. some other ones first of all. Uh, that works. This one is from Greg on the Facebook page. Fist asked for some feedback. Sorry, Fist, but I agreed with your partners in crime. Your religious nut was too tame and you were too soft on him. And he goes on. (laughs) So, Fair enough. That was feedback. Um, Let me see. Other feedback is, well, so dear listener, a couple of things. First of all, Landon Hardbottom, he's on the ball because he goes onto our website and clicks on the speak pipe link which allows him to leave a voicemail message. So you can just record a message for us really easily. 
The other thing that's on there is a testimonials link. So if you can't be bothered going to Apple and leaving a testimonial, because it is a difficult process, it's really easy to leave one on the testimonial link. And we've got one from Watley who said, G'day, Iron and Valve. When I found you blokes, I had finally found some Australian voices of reason and common sense. After listening to a chunk of the back catalogue and keeping up to date with the podcast, I became a patron. You fellas should be on the Senate. Anyway, episode 139 was a little strange at first until Lanata came out, and then, oh mate, it became comedy. Where did you dig up that crazy nutter? Thanks, Fist and Glove from Watley. So that was a positive review. Who's the from, nutter? So that would have been his reference to Chris Lambie. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, Chris, if you're listening, mm. but that was his words. Um, so there you go, a positive review and a patron as well. Welcome aboard, Watley. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Just be careful, by the way. Um, if you're going through the back catalogues, there, there is a danger, and I'll just uh, – we did get a message from somebody once, and be, Watley, be careful, because remember this. Thanks for seeing me, Doc. Um, I started listening to the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove, you know, just once a week to take the edge off, and now I can't stop. I'm downloading and listening to back copies almost every day. I need your help, please. Yes, Watley, just be careful, that can happen. Mm. Look, I've, I've heard the feedback. So I've reached out to a guy, and I don't want to give his name just yet, but um, this guy is very pro-religion, and he's going to be speaking at a Freedom for Faith conference, and he's a, he's a university law lecturer with a doctorate of philosophy and first class honours in law and a Bachelor of Science and he's written a book um, heavily involved in why basically oh, I'm, I'm scared to paraphrase it but he's deals a lot with religion and the law and the ethics of religion finding its way into the law. So there you go. It's, I've asked him and he's going to th- think about it. So I'm just contacting him today. So I've heard the call and we're going to try and get somebody else like that. What I haven't mentioned this one to you. This is without notice, this one. But I, I was just in the newsagent killing time waiting for something else and I bought this philosophy book and, or magazine and stumbled on some stuff. How about this for a quote? You are a citizen of a great and powerful nation. Are you not ashamed that you give so much time to the pursuit of money and reputation and honours and care so little for truth and wisdom and improvement of your soul? And that is from Socrates. It's amazing how timeless some of this stuff is, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. It is, yeah. That's mm. very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, what country did you think uh, the person was talking about until you came to the name Socrates at could, the end? It could, could have been any Western... Well, any modern power-hungry, money-hungry country in the modern world. Yeah, that's mm. what I was thinking. Yeah, it could, it have, could been. have been the United States, the United Kingdom, any of them. Yeah. Australia, Australia. Yeah, Australia, Careful. mate. Yeah, well, um, Australia is the middle power. We are, you know, we are a middle power. So you know, it's um, it's not unreasonable that other countries look up to us. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I want to kick off a little philosophical discussion in terms of way of thinking about philosophy and ethics. And Socrates and Aristotle, it seems, 
I'm just quoting from this article that it's linked to. Um, one of the classic questions of philosophy is what should I do? You know, the trolley problem, what do I do? Flick the lever and kill three people or let it go and kill ten people and all that sort of stuff. However, from earliest times, some have argued that this question is less important than the question of what kind of people we should be. If we can become better people, then good actions will follow naturally. So in the past few centuries, the focus has been on people's consciously chosen actions. But some have found this kind of rule-following ethics to be desiccated. They claim it doesn't take enough account of the emotions and affectations of the moral agent, for instance, or it encourages people to do good deeds grudgingly, even resentfully. Virtue ethicists suggest that we can... Um, so, yeah, so I'm interested in that one because there is a difference between people who work out what the right thing is to do and do it grudgingly or resentfully, knowing it's the right thing, and somebody who as a virtue ethic such that it's not grudging or resentful, they want to do that right thing because they truly want to. There's two different ideas there. Mm. You know, I'm often struck by the the claim by some religious people that, um, as we know, a lot of religious people and religious organisations do charitable works. And um, there's this sort of suggestion that they're doing it because their religion tells them it's the right thing to do. But I think most of us would probably counter with the argument that a lot of those people probably would want to do good things anyway, even if they didn't have the religion or, or regardless of the specific religious tradition that they subscribe to. Yeah. So in Chris Lambie's defence... With his group, if we remember, they weren't so much concerned with the do's and don'ts. Mm. They were more concerned with the vibe, yeah. essentially. and With like, being good people. Yes. Mm. And so when people say, uh, you know, the interview with Chris was a waste of time, they're actually having had that interview made me sort of think more carefully about that sort of distinction and... It's cropped up in a couple of these articles. So just on virtue ethics and whether you actually enjoy being virtuous and want to naturally, they say that's something that you can promote within yourself through observance and following the example of inspiring individuals and also through practice. So if you practice being patient, you can become more patient. So these are things that you can actually work on. It's not just innate is the theory. So virtue ethicists say that that is possible. And uh, the second article that I've got a link to, again, makes this distinction between um, act-centred sort of um, ethics and, and the vibe sort of ethics. And the analogy in religion is that the Old Testament was very much do's and don'ts of acts, whereas supposedly the New Testament was the love thy neighbour and be merciful and kind and a more of a virtue ethic than a do's and don'ts. And 
that Christians reconcile the two by saying, you know, you should feel that you're doing the right thing and if you're not sure, then refer to the strict rules and see how you're going. <laughs> and it might be the same for non-Christians to develop a vibe of, of virtue and then refer back to some, some uh, Kantian or Mills-type ideas of, of action ethics as a reference to mix the two. Anyway, when we talk about ethics... I thought it was interesting to divide them up. Have you ever seen that distinction before, Twelfth Man? I haven't um, thought about it in quite the same way in recent times. But, look, you know, I think um, when I was growing up, uh, even though I wasn't particularly religious, um, I think there was this general vibe around uh, in younger generations that, you know, to self-improvement and to, to, to become a, a better person was just a good thing to do. Mm. Didn't you? Were you aware of a similar sort of um, idea? Look, look, I was poisoned by a Catholic indoctrination process at the time, so who knows what my, <laughs> who knows what my feeble mind was thinking at the time. So, well, I was brought up as a as a Presbyterian, mm-hmm. and there was a. I remember Mum. She always used to point to what was written in the Bible and all that sort of stuff. So she was very much the. Um, legalistic interpretation of it all. Yep. But I remember Dad always used to say, well, you've got to do the right thing. There you go. So yeah, your so dad was more the virtue ethicist and, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a different way of thinking. But yeah. let's see. Um, one of our conundrums that hasn't been resolved lately is the one about the Aboriginal witch doctors in the medical service. And we got some feedback from Janelle, who's one of our long-time, long-term supporters. Good on you, Janelle, for um, A, for being such a long-time supporter, and B, for giving us some feedback. And she wrote about the Aboriginal healers in public hospitals, and she's not very comfortable with the idea at all. And she said a few things that I'll just try and summarise as best I can, Janelle, was that you know, they've got limited resources in hospitals and every bit that these people use up is a resource that isn't available for proper Western medicine. And she said that uh, that topic was actually posted in Skeptics Australia Facebook group and she couldn't believe the number of sceptics who were in favour of the Aboriginal witch doctors. And... Um, she really doubts whether there is a genuine increase in attendance and that the people who are doing it could well have, who are counting the numbers, might well be disposed to fudge the figures, I guess. And in the long term, what's the long term consequence? So in the short term, you might get a few people, but in the long term, what are the consequences? And um, she said here... Let me just see her long-term thing. Um, uh, the long-term impact may be to raise the profile of traditional Aboriginal medicine with the puffed-up self-importance typical of charlatans. They may take credit for a patient's recovery, even though it was actually the chemotherapy. Over the long term, this may have a detrimental impact on health uh, if more people avoid invasive chemotherapy and radiation therapy. I mean, it's a good point. If point. you've got a system that's legitimising this, then that could well happen. Mm. Good point, Janelle. 
Uh, it is a very good point. I still think that um, I still think we've got to go back to the original idea that you get you're getting people through the door. Okay, on that so on that she score, does, she does actually raise she does actually raise a very valid point though. Yeah, so. on that score though, Scott, she says here, if anything goes, as long as we get people in the door, why don't we just pay people to attend the medical appointments? Five, <laughs> this is great. Five dollars a visit, and it will be a more cost-effective scheme than employing a witch doctor, and it doesn't undermine the whole purpose of hospitals in providing evidence-based medicine. You know what would work no, even better? Wait, let me just finish it so I don't misquote it. No, I don't think this is a great idea either, but it's better than this scheme, exclamation mark. I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's convincing I'm me. I'm actually thinking that five bucks a patient is probably worth it. Yeah. I reckon open a McDonald's franchise in the uh, reception area of the hospital. What, what we, yeah, well, that could do the trick. I mean, we could you, – you're dead right. Offer some – we need a control group. We need one hospital where they're just paying people $5 to attend and another one where they've got the witch doctor and see how it goes. And you could be right, Janelle, on that one. I really like that argument. So very good. Uh, time, actually. While we're on this topic of uh, Janelle, who's been a long-time supporter and patron, I think I might have missed some names last week when I mentioned the... I think I did, did miss uh, Grant, for example. If I missed anybody last week when I ran through the patrons... Really sorry, but uh, what I thought I'd do this week is give a special shout-out in terms of longevity of supporting the show. We've got three people who have been with us since 2016, Sean, Alex, and Janelle. Really? And, yep, we've got a few who have been with us since 2017. That's Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous, and Alison. And then this year... We've got um, people who have joined us so far in 2018 are Steve, Tony, Caitlin, James, Craig, Jimmy, James and Jimmy Spud. So Jimmy Spud, he recognised that we've got Timmy, James and Jimmy's and he's um, created an extra special name for himself. Good on you, Jimmy Spud, who's just come on board. <laughs> so that's a, if your name is James and you're listening to this podcast regularly and you're not a patron then what's going on? And the rest of the Jameses are showing you up. Just because you, the name James is being said doesn't mean that's you, okay? So thank you especially to all the Jameses. So that's the patrons. Thank you for your help. And, in fact, um, I'm going to be buying some more stuff because we worked out we're going to have Scott in the studio a bit more often because our Skype call... Just keeps dropping out. Just keeps dropping out, um, yeah. And, um, and I'd like to do some debates with a fourth person here and say, well, we're going to buy a few more microphones and cords so your money will be spent in that direction and helping to make the podcast more interesting rather than just beers for the 12th man. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, it occurred to me, 12th man, that uh, actually... No, I was reading. Sorry, bump the microphone. That's not very good. Would you agree with this? People in the West tend to be more individualistic. They tend to think about themselves as free, independent individuals rather than as holding sharply defined social positions. People in the East, on the other hand, are more collectivist in general and tend to think of themselves in terms of their relationships with others. Would you say that's right? 
I think there is quite a lot of um, truth in it, even though I think people in the West probably aren't as independent and, 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 and autonomous as they like to think they are. Yeah, but there's certainly a, it's a Western idea, mm. the idea of the individual and the freedom of the individual. Certainly in, in Oriental countries there does tend to be a lot more of this consideration of um, the group or the neighbours or the, 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 yeah. the, people, the other people in the office. Japan is the classic example yeah. of that. So you being a libertarian, 12th man... Am I? Do you think it's possible that you've just picked up a cultural relic of, of, a, of a particular um, predisposition towards an individualist notion of the world and how we should interact with each other and this freedom of the individual personal liberty? Do you think it's possible that this is actually... In the same way that somebody brought up in Iran is going to be a Muslim, you know, the fact that you've been brought up in the West, you've adopted a, a libertarian philosophy that you wouldn't have had had you been raised in Japan. I would say that's quite likely. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I think your social environment does definitely shape your your ideas and your conception of, of the world, yeah. Yeah. Bearing that in mind, all of our arguments about cakes for gay couples, you think you might change your mind now? Because perhaps you're indoctrinated or no? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think I'm open to persuasion as usual, but um, look, you know, obviously if I'd grown up in Japan, Mm. I would have had a completely different experience of of life and interaction with other people and... I just know from my experience living there that Japanese people are much, much, much more conscious of how their own personal actions impact on the people around them. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I even got myself into, well, I, I don't know whether it's, I'd say strife, but I perhaps did some things that were... Considered would have been considered by Japanese to be inconsiderate or antisocial, like leaving my my stereo on on a timer, yep. um, perhaps a little too loud because there yeah. was people living on the other side of the wall. Yep. Going to work, coming home at the end of the day, and finding the neighbours sort of frantically sort of saying, oh, my God, that music's been driving us crazy all day. You know, right. Could you turn it down or turn right. it off? And, right, OK. You know, things like that. Whereas in Australia, I suppose people would just come out and abuse you and just say, you right. know... <laughs> <laughs> being less polite turn about it. Yeah. fucking yeah. thing yeah. off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Whereas, you know, the Japanese, I mean, they, they, they simply probably wouldn't have let it happen in the first place. Mm. Anyway... Just sort of making the point that we're very conscious of people being a certain religion because of the place where they grew up, mm. and perhaps a libertarian view, which is which is very dominant in American society, mm. uh, clearly can be equally a result of just cultural influence, more so than a rational a result of a rational thought process that's weighed up everything equally. Don't forget that you you and I went to you know, Western tradition universities where mm. we were encouraged 
to think for ourselves a lot more. Whereas mm. in universities, in I, I'm, I haven't been to one in Japan, mm. but from my interaction with people who have been to university, I don't think they're encouraged to think for themselves to anywhere near the same degree. But you know what? I don't think I was encouraged at university to think for myself particularly. Really? Well, I, I was. Did, I did a law degree and it was, well, here's what the law is. And you just need to know these rules and there's going to be an exam at the end with a hypothetical mm. situation. And we don't care what your personal opinion is mm. about whether this, what should happen. You tell us what will happen if you walk into a court of law. So it, it actually, for that particular degree, and probably for a lot of uh, you know, engineering or... Uh, hard sciences in technology, you have to get the numbers right, yes. or whatever you build yes. is going to fall fall down. Yes, you need to have some imagination in design, for example. But uh, certainly, my experience was not one where there was great discussion mm. or encouragement for original thought. Scott, in an accounting course, did you were you encouraged to to provide original thoughts for your fellow <laughs> prospective accountants? Yeah. Um, there was only one subject where we were encouraged to um, think outside the box, and that was income tax law. Uh, the rest of it, the rest of it was um, very much follow these rules and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you know, it depended on what electives you took to and that sort of stuff. That you might have had some. There might have been some uh, think for yourself type of thing that came in, but I didn't. Do those electives? I just, I just did the law and that sort of stuff. I might, have, moved on. Yeah. I might have just been lucky. Look, I had this really terrific political science lecturer, and I'll give you an example. He said that he he told us one day. He said there was this this uh, young Japanese exchange student in in the uh, tutorial, you know, and uh, it was it was you know he was asked to do his little tutorial or whatever. And he said this young Japanese guy got very frustrated and a little bit perturbed and he said to this political science teacher, why do you keep asking me what I think? Why don't you just tell me what I should be thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. That that, that was the impression I got. There's a lot to be said for the... Now, in America, when you do a university degree, you, you do a general sort of arts style of initial degree for two years or something. In Japan, too. And, and then yeah. only in, the third or fourth college. or fifth years that, that you're doing then your, mm. your chosen specialty. You do a kind of general studies uh, course yes. to prepare you for your area of specialisation. Yes. yes. I think that's not a bad idea, and they do that in Japan, do you know? Right. You know, typically, if they haven't changed it since I lived there, typically a, a standard four-year university degree course, the first two years are general studies. Yeah. And after that, you specialise. Even for doctors, and I had a, a young guy who was a medical student at Kyoto University who came to me for some English lessons for a little while, and he was still doing his first two years of general study, so he wasn't studying medicine at all for the first two years. Yeah. I, I personally, you know, on reflection, I, I came to the view that that was probably a good thing. 
treasurer, Scott. Absolutely. You know, in an Iron Fist Velvet Glove government when you're treasurer, can we afford to uh, tack on a year or two to university degrees and, and well, minister yeah, for education? Got, oh, what, you want to, what you've got to do is you've got to cut out the garbage that goes into a, into a standard degree. Right. You know, <clears throat> I did a three-year degree when I did my degree and it could have been cut back by 12 months. Yep. So, you know... I think that if you're going to have that general studies idea first, which I like, I do like the idea of having two years of general studies, then after that you've then got a your standard three-year degree should be a two-year degree where you just specialise and get the hell out of the place yes, as quickly as you can. Mine was no a worries. social science kind of degree, and the first year was called foundation year, and everybody did the same things. We all did the same, you know core courses in things like political science, anthropology, sociology, history, economics, Mm. whatever. So we all did a foundation year. And then in the second and third years, we chose whichever electives uh, we thought uh, appealed to us. Yeah. Yep. And I think it worked. I think it was good. Mm. Uh, You guys been paying much attention to the sort of um, Facebook data Issues, Not Scott, much, you know, with the release of uh, private the information. Cambridge Analytica. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the hell people were expecting because um, I'd always known that everything that went up there was public mm. yep. and that uh, it was going to be mined and that sort of stuff. So I don't know what the hell people were expecting. was surprised at the backlash. I suppose what it was really wrong about it was that they had developed a tool that not only sent all your information off to the Cambridge Analytica, but it mined all your friends' information as well and sent that off to Cambridge Analytica. Yes, so it had a sort of a quiz type thing. And if you signed up and did the quiz, then not only your private information, but all of your friends went to the quiz people as well. Yeah, so... Anyway, dear listener, I've got a link here. Now, I don't know, people don't necessarily click on links that we provide for all these articles, but I've got one here that I reckon people might give a go to. And it's in response to that whole scenario. And the writer of it, uh, Dylan Curran, has an article here titled, Are You Ready? Here is all the data Facebook and Google have on you. And he basically has created links which you can click on that you can look at the data that... Google and Facebook have on you. So Google stores your location if you've got location tracking turned on. Every time you turn on your phone, you can see a timeline of where you've been from the very first day you started using Google on your phone. And he's got a link there. And if you click on it, it will access your Google account and provide you that information. It's quite interesting. Um, He's able to show every place that he's been in Ireland in the last 12 months the time of day that he was there and the location and how long it took him to get to the next location. Like, the data is amazing if that location is turned on. Uh, Google stores search history of all your devices. That can mean even if you delete your search history and phone history in one device, it may still have data saved from other devices. Click on this link to see your own data and you can have a look and see what Google's got on you. Um... Google creates an advertisement profile based on your information, including your location, gender, age, hobbies, career interests. Click on this link to see your own data. It's got all of your YouTube history. Every YouTube um, link that you've clicked on, going back 
five, six, ten years, whatever YouTube's been going, it's there. Click on this button and you will see your own personal YouTube history. Um, here's an interesting one. Google offers an option to download all of the data it stores about you. I've requested to download it and the file is 5.5 gigabytes big, um, which is roughly 3 million Word documents. This link includes your bookmarks, emails, contacts, your Google Drive files, all of the above information, your YouTube videos, the photos you've taken on your phone, businesses you've bought from, the products you've bought. Um, so you can download that and... Um, just see. Oh, and somewhere there it showed that I think that downloaded document, even things that he had deliberately deleted still showed up. So they've got it all. And if you're interested in what personal information Google and Facebook have on you, then um, link, click on those links and you can have a look. It is quite interesting. And kind of handy if you're thinking, what was that thing I was looking at five years ago? I can't remember. What's actually there? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Did you get a chance to look at the Ken and Manic one about a fence? Did any of you listen? Are either of you aware of that video where the guy had the Nazi pug dog? Hmm. No. Did you actually see the video? Yeah, he was was convicted of um, race hate crime of some sort, wasn't he? So this guy in the UK, um, he, tr- he trained his dog to raise its paw in response to certain words and the paw raising was kind of like a Hitler-style Nazi salute is what he was making out. And he was, uh, his girlfriend was always saying how cute her pug dog was. So he trained the pug, the pug dog to... Nazi salute if he said things like gas the Jews or Heil Hitler or stuff like pro-Nazi stuff like that. Made a video, loaded it onto YouTube and had three million likes. Ended up in court with the court saying, well... uh, It was anti-Semitic hate, hatred or something like that. Correct. And waiting sentence, so they found guilty awaiting sentence, the guy could end up in jail. It's appalling, isn't it? So it's, it was in poor taste and quite sick. Yeah, but it was a joke. But, but it was a joke, and it was a joke as much poking fun at Nazis mm. as... And I've got to hear a clip which I'll insert at the end, I think, or maybe I won't, I'm not sure... Anyway, Jonathan Pye, um, he goes on a real rant about this and he's making the point that, look, it was actually insulting to Nazis to have this pug dog doing the salute and there's no neo-Nazi groups were going to be using that video as a promotional tool and it's just a joke and that this guy's thrown in jail for that is absolutely criminal. And he goes off. So I think I'll just put the link to it. You can listen to mm. Jonathan Pye yourselves. He's coming to town um, in end of May, and a ticket is about $65 at the old museum. I think he could be worth it. Um, yeah. Anyone want to go? Yeah, maybe. I'll go, yeah. You'll sure. go? Okay. Let me just yeah. um, let me tell you when exactly, dear listener. <sighs> 22nd of May. 
at the old museum, Jonathan Pye, um, tickets $69. Mm. Um, whereas somebody like, somebody, you know, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and that, when they come, I sort of feel like, you know, I think I've heard it all before, but Jonathan Pye in the flesh could be good. It might be entertaining, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. All right, dear listener, I reckon we've probably done enough. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention. For our patrons, um, if you do sign up as a patron and we're really busy and we just throw in a repeat episode, you don't get charged. So even if you're paying a dollar a show and and like I'm likely to do next week because I have to be away and just throw in a repeat of one of my favourite episodes, our patrons don't get charged. So So there's no excuse. Sign up like Jimmy Spud. <laughs> and if your name is James, you know, you definitely have to be on board. So, right. Thank you, dear listener. Uh, Scott, would you like to sign off? Thank you very much for listening in, people. We will talk to you week after next. 12th man. Unless the Australian cricket team oh, calls you up. call me up. No, the South African tour is over anyway. So right. I'm, I think I'm good. Right. You're just going to... Have a bit of a holiday with your wag, and um, and you know, should be around in a fortnight's time. Yes, thank you, listeners, for tuning in again. Talk to you then. Bye, everyone. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event... You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.